Uh, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're just going over the first 12 verses today. And uh, there's a lot going on that, uh, that maybe if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, I just want to update you on what's been going on. Uh, so, so far, for the first 12 chapters of Acts, we've been looking at how the church was birthed and some of the challenges that, that they faced. Um, today, we're going to be looking at a different church. Last week, we introduced it. It's a church in a place called Antioch, which is 300 miles north of the first church. And uh, the question that I think Luke, who wrote this book, is trying to answer is this question right here, which is, boom, there it is. How did the church expand in the first century? Because today when we think about, well, how do we grow a church? We think about, well, what we need to do is maybe we'll have more refreshments or maybe we'll have like some, you know, we'll have like a cool worship song or I don't know. We'll have a movie night. We'll bring a bounce house. That'll be fun. You know, I'll come to church for that. You know, but, you know, they had a very different mindset back then. And so we're going to be looking at how they did that. And we're going to break it down. So we're going to go verse by verse. And we're going to sum it up at the very end because the story seems kind of disjointed. I mean, it goes very linear, but you're like, well, why did he bring this up and this up and then that up? So we're going to be bringing it all together at the very end. So here we go. Verse thir- chapter 13, verse 1. Now... In the church at Antioch. Now, this is a story that took place 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe. So what that means is a lot of us probably can't visualize what that was like, right? So I want to give you a little idea where it is. So here's a map of Europe and Africa. Okay, and over here, that's the church of Antioch. Jerusalem is down here off the map. That's how far it is. And so this church is really unique in the sense that this is the first church that was recognized as a church, okay, because up until this point, this group of people in Antioch is not recognized as a church. This is the first time that this group of people are recognized as a church. This is the first church that is outside the country, the nation of Israel. Okay, so uh, let's, let's go to the next slide. So it says, now in the church at Antioch, which is the first church that's outside of Israel, huge deal back then. This next information, this next bit of detail is very important. It says this, this now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So these are the leaders of that church. And they give you five names. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menane, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. We'll talk about that later. And Saul, her five names. Now, why are these five people so important that Luke is like, let me stop to tell you who were in charge of this church at Antioch. The reason why it's so important is because of where they're from. So I want to share with you this map again. Okay, so that's Antioch over there. These people came all around from these areas right here. Like, for example, we have Saul over here. Saul is from a place called Tarsus. Tarsus is a little bit north of Antioch, which means he was born outside of Israel. Okay, and not only that, because he was born outside of Israel, he had Roman citizenship, but he was also a Pharisee. He went to the highest schools. He was taught, taught by the greatest Pharisee of all at that time. His name is Gamaliel. He'll make a cameo a few chapters later in this story, right? And so Saul was a super duper like religious guy. And then we have this guy named Barnabas. He comes from the small island right here called Cyprus. And he comes from his genealogy. If you go all the way back, his great ancestor was uh, a guy by the name of Levi, which makes him a Levite, which makes him somebody who is eligible to become a priest if he wanted to. Okay, so that's Levi. Then we have this guy over here. We have Menane. Menane has said that he was brought up with a guy named, named uh, Herod Tetrarch. Now, if you don't know who that is, because you're like, you probably heard the name Herod before. Herods were the people who, that's a family name, were people who basically ruled Israel because the Romans said that they could. 
Last week, one of them died. His name is Herod Agrippa, if you were here with us last week. And that's his uncle. Tetra, Herod Tetrarch is the uncle of the guy that died last week. Okay, so this guy is really, uh, and this guy was raised with him. Now, Menane was raised with him, but the word right there implies that he was a foster brother. So this guy, Menane, he was, he, he, he's a Roman citizen most likely, but he grew up over here in Israel. And because he was raised in Israel and because he was rich, because he had the right connections, he was also considered royalty. So that's the guy, Menane. Over here we have Lucius. He's from Africa. We know that he's a Jew, but his nationality is right here from the northern part of, of, of Egypt. And then finally we have this guy, Simeon, called Niger. That's his nickname. Niger means black because that was basically his skin complexion back then. Well, it still is, but, you know. But <clears throat> his name, Niger, that name, Niger, the nickname that he has, is actually a Latin word. In Africa at the time, the Latin language was spoken mostly over here on the west side. So we know that he's from over here somewhere. We don't know exactly where, but he's from over here. This diverse group of people, this multi-ethnic gathering of people, was the leadership of the church in Antioch. And that's a huge deal. Because most people back then, their gatherings were usually not mixed. They were usually just one race of people. So when we talk about, and not only that, by the way, like in terms of economic, like socioeconomic status, I mean, we have people who are rich like Menane, but we also have people like Lucius who people think were not that rich. So we have this whole wide range of people in that regard also, right? So when we think about, like, you know, I think a lot of you guys have read Acts chapter 2, if you haven't, that's where the church started. Everybody points to Acts chapter 2 and says, oh man, that, that is the kind of church we want to be. But a lot of people who study the book of Acts would say that the Acts chapter 13 church is actually the model church. They're saying, if you want to be a church that God, like Jesus had in mind, you look at the church in Antioch. This is a church that you want to be, multi-ethnic, people of diverse backgrounds, people from different areas, people of different color skin. Like, this is what we're looking for. This is the church that everybody should be striving to be. And so what's really interesting is, because this is the model church, at this point in the story, what you're going to discover is, you know, for the first 12 chapters, they've been talking about this church in Jerusalem. This is the first church that was established. But from this point on, you're not going to hear about the church in Jerusalem as much anymore. And then the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were usually, there were the 12 disciples of Jesus. Well, one, Judas, he died. Okay, and then last week, James died. So it's 10. So the 10 remaining disciples, they're the ones that are running the church in Jerusalem. But now from this point on, we're not going to be focusing on that church anymore. We're going to be church focusing on the leaders, or particularly two of them, from the church that we just talked about in Antioch. So with that as our background, let's go to verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So there's five leaders there. He picks two out of them and says, Okay, Holy Spirit says, You two are going to go on a trip. You're going to go spread this message. Now, here's the really interesting thing about this, okay? Because we read this and we're like, Oh, yeah, I read something like that before. You know, the Holy Spirit said this, Holy Spirit said that. And, you know, that's a very common thing. But have you ever wondered what that looked like? Like, were people praying and people were chanting or whatever, hum, and then all of a sudden they're like, I hear the Lord, he said this. Like, is that how the Holy Spirit communicates? Well, there's clues in this story that shares with us what that actually looked like. If you're wondering what it feels like, what it looks like for people, at least in this context, what it looked like for the Holy Spirit to speak to a group of people in the church, this is what it looked like. People from diverse backgrounds get together they put aside their wants and desires because right here it says that they fasted, right? It says they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. Fasting is denying your desires. 
So you're coming together saying, I'm not, I don't have any agenda, I'm putting that aside, let's get together and let's share together what we think God wants us to do. So one person would say, I think he's calling us to do this. Another person, oh, I think he's calling us to do that. Really, it's not because that's what I want to see happen. I set my agenda aside. This is what I think is happening. And people will talk and they will discuss and they're saying, that's interesting that you think God is saying that because I think God is telling me the same thing. And they'll start weeding out the things they think is not from God and eventually they'll come to a consensus and they call that they heard from the Holy Spirit. So that's what they did back then, at least at this church. Maybe in different contexts they do it differently, but at least in the church in Antioch, that's what they did. And usually, when the Holy Spirit speaks, what they discovered is this. Next slide. The Holy Spirit often prompts sacrificial tasks. And the reason we also know that is because in this context, we have five amazing leaders from around the world who are hanging out in this one place called Antioch, leading other people, right? And then at that point, they're saying, we want you to send two of your five, not only just any two, two of the most educated people in your group. Because Paul, the, well, his name is Saul right now. Saul is extremely educated. He's probably the smartest person in that entire church. And Barnabas was also raised in a context where he had to study the Torah and stuff like that. So, th so this is a huge loss for that first church. And so this church, I mean, when the Holy Spirit called them to send two people out, this is a huge sacrificial thing that they had to do. So let's find out what they do next, right? Here we go. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We, we're sorry to see you go, but we, we totally believe we talked about this. We saw the Holy Spirit work. We know that this is what God really wants us to do. So it's a total loss for the church in Antioch. They're going to be just fine, by the way. So they set aside Saul and Barnabas, and they say, okay, you need to go. Now, you can just imagine. They're like, all right, let's go. Let's go now. Okay, so let's put on our sandals. Let's put on our little satchels, you know. Oh, let's get some water and some food because we might need some. Oh, our life savings, let's take that with us too. All right, let's go. So they're about to step out the door. And then one looks at the other and says, where are we going? And I got, oh, good point. Like, we can't just go. We need a place to go, right? So, so a lot of scholars, they differ on opinion on how they arrived at the conclusion of where they're supposed to go next. I have my own theory, and I want to share that with you guys right now, if that's okay. Okay, so this is how it goes. So here are five names. Here are the five leaders that were considered. These were the people who were like, okay, out of the five, we're going to send two. And so they're like, if God chose these two, then there must be some reason for it, right? So let's look at some of the people who didn't get called out. So let's cross off the name Simeon and Lucius. These two people are from Africa, right? If God chose these two people, they would have been like, I think God wants us to go to Africa. But because those two names are crossed off, this is their way of thinking, okay, wait a minute. So wherever we go, it's not to the south, to the Africa. Where God wants to send us, it's going to be to the north and to the west because that's where God is calling us, okay? So those are these three left. And then we also know it's not Manane, so we just crossed that out. So that, that means Manane, his residency is in Israel. It's like, okay, so we're not staying in Israel either. Okay, so we know that much, right? And we're also not talking to the rich because, you know, Manane has complete access to the rich and the wealthy people in Israel, and he's not going, so it's like, okay, so we're not going there. So the, the last two that's remaining, which is Barnabas and Saul, they're like, okay, so what do we have in common? And they're like, well, we're both people who are Jews who didn't grow up in Israel, okay? And you know what it is? Oh, Saul, Saul is this celebrity of a religious person. Like, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Meaning, if he were to walk into a synagogue, people would be like, oh, man, that's Saul. I read about him on the news. 
tablet or whatever they used back then, right? It's like, oh, and if they had phones, they'd be like, hey, hey, hey Mr. Saul, can, can, I, can I take a selfie with you? Like, he was that popular. He was really famous back then. People talked about him. And then Barnabas, he was also famous. So, so they're like, okay, I think we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go and visit synagogues. That's not in Israel. It's like, okay, so where are we going to go first? It's like, okay. And it's like, oh, well, Barnabas is like, oh, you know the place I grew up in, Cyprus? There's a bunch of synagogues there. And so Saul's like, all right, let's go there. So the two of them, next verse, two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So that's my theory, like why they picked Cyprus, because there's nothing in scripture that says that, the, that this, you know. But anyway, okay. So they go to Cyprus. And in case you're wondering where Cyprus is, here's the map again. Okay, so we're here in Antioch. That's where they take off. And they go to this island. And the first stop they make is on the east coast called Salamis or salami, it's still the same way. Okay, so, so once they get there, this is what happens. Next verse. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, plural, because there's enough Jews there to have multiple synagogues. John was with them as their helper. John Mark, this isn't John the Apostle, John Mark. He, he's probably with them because he was an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's the guy who wrote the book of Mark, by the way. So shout out to him. Okay. So now if you're wondering, if these people just showed up at some random synagogue, what makes you think that they could just take over the whole meeting and start sharing what they want to share? I mean, if somebody came into our church today and they're like, hey, there's this famous pastor that came by to our church today, um, what are the chances of me or Lori letting that person take over the pulpit? Like, am I going to be like, oh, you know, I had a sermon prepared, but I'll use it next week. You could come in and take the pulpit, right? Well, back then, it turns out there's something called, and this is like a Jewish thing, it's called the custom of the courtesy of the synagogue. There's a ranking system in the Jewish culture, right? And Paul, Saul, I keep saying that, but Saul was at the top of that list. So when he entered into a synagogue, he pretty much was, everybody else would be like, okay, go ahead, Mr. Saul, you, you take the pulpit, you, you give the message today. And so wherever he went, he would be able to share his message because he knew that he had that access. Okay, so this story goes on. It doesn't tell you what happened in these synagogues. Okay, so from here, the next, next slide. So from Salamis, we move over all the way to the west coast of the island to a place called Paphos. Now, they didn't go in a straight line. There's like a mountain range right there. They probably followed the coastline, but it was easier for me to just animate an arrow going over. Okay, so Saul and Barnabas, they make, it, make their way to Paphos. Now, Paphos is not where there's, there are synagogues there, but in this story, they don't go to a synagogue. This is the part that gets really interesting. Okay, so let, let's read the verse and then we'll break it down because this part gets really, really strange. Okay, here we go. There at, at Paphos, they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Interesting name. Who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, if, if I lost you there, let me see if I could get your attention back. Here we go. Okay. So the Caesar, he was basically the king of all the Roman Empire. He took over so much land that he couldn't keep his eye on everything. So he hired people he trusted to oversee certain parts of the empire that he ruled over. So a consul is that person, a proconsul is that person. And here the proconsul, his name is Sergius Paul Paulus. Okay, so he's the most important person on that island. He's basically Caesar to everybody there. He rules over that land. And next to him is this guy who is like, so every important person has advisors. 
And next to him is this Jewish man. We know his name, he's Jewish because Bar-Jesus is a Jewish name. Bar-Jesus, Bar, in case you didn't know, means the son of. Jesus is Jesus. And Jesus is a very common name. It's not like Jesus of Nazareth, the one that we call Lord, right? We have a guy named Jesus, and he had a son. His name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. He has another name. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay, and so here is the, the, the most powerful person on this island, and next to him is this Jewish man who, according to this, says that he's a sorcerer and a false prophet. Interesting. Okay, let's move on. The proconsul, an intelligent man, and you're going to find out why he's so intelligent, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of the Lord. He's been hearing through the, the grapevines. Yeah, there's this guy who's been going from place to place. He's been sharing the news of God about Jesus, and people's lives are being transformed. Proconsul's like, really? I want to hear from this guy. It's like, okay, let's invite him over, which... I don't think even, Bar even though Barnabas is from here, I don't think he's ever been to see the proconsul before. Then we find out Bar-Jesus' other name, but Elymas, that's the name, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Proconsul's like, I want to learn more about Jesus. Please teach me about Jesus. And the guy who's standing next to him is like, no, we're not going to let that happen. For those of you who are into Disney movies, it's kind of like Jafar and the Sultan, right? So that would be like Elymas, Bar-Jesus, right? And, and the proconsul is like the sultan. You, you know what I'm talking about? In case you guys haven't seen this movie, uh, maybe you're more into Lord of the Rings. Okay, so next slide here. Um, so if you know this scene right here, uh, this is Wormtongue, and this is King Theoden. No, for you nerds out there? Okay, yeah. A few fist bumps on the back. All right, okay. Like, he'll say, they're not welcome here. And he'll be like, oh, you're not welcome here. Like he just repeats whatever this guy says, right? So that's the image that I want you to get here. There's this guy who's really intelligent, who's kind of being swayed by this other guy by, by the name of Bar-Jesus. Okay, so this is the scene that's set for us. Something strange is about to happen. Next verse. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, and this is the first time that Saul is called Paul in the book of Acts, and from here on out, he's always called Paul. And we're going to talk about this more in detail next week. This is a really important part of the story. So Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said this. Now, what I'm about to read right now is not a template for how you should be dealing with people who disagree with you. Because you're going to find out that Paul, he, he, he doesn't have much finesse. Let's just put it that way. Let's see what he says. He says, you are a child of the devil. Not a great way to start a a talk, right? Okay. Before I move on, I want to clarify for you guys that there's actually meaning behind this. He's not just trying to get the guy angry. Like the word devil right here in the Greek, this is written in Greek originally, is the word diabolos in the Greek. And the word diabolos literally means false accuser. He's saying you are, like you call yourself bar Jesus, and it's so offensive that the one that I follow, his name is also Jesus, and you're calling yourself the son of Jesus. It's really offensive. You're not the son of Jesus. You, you're the son of the devil. You are the son of Diabolus. You are the son. You, everything that you're accusing people of, is all false. That's what he's saying here. And he clarifies that in the next slide. And an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, because you're always lying. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? This is Paul getting really angry because he had a short temper in the past and still kind of there, right? Um, and so he says this thing, what a great way to open a talk. And then 
Paul, he performs his very first miracle. That's recorded for us, at least. Now, when we think about the miracles in the Bible, like we think about Jesus, his first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding. That's great. You know, he took a bunch of bread, a little bit of bread and some, some fish, and he multiplied so everybody could eat. He healed people. He brought people back to life. He did all these great things, right? Well, let's find out what good Paul's first miracle recorded for us is. This is what he does. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, so temporarily, not even able to see the light of the sun. Meaning, if you were to close your eyes and look at the sun, you could still see the light, right? He's like, you're not even going to be able to see that. Then he continues. He says, immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So he's like, all of a sudden, he's trying to find things by, you know, like, please, somebody guide me. And this is Paul's way of saying this. Until now, you've been leading people astray. Now, you're going to be temporarily blind until you're, like, other people are going to be leading you. And once you figure out how to do that, then you're going to be restored your sight. Um, So here's the thing. Paul's first miracle, recorded miracle, was making someone temporarily blind. Really, Paul? Like, this, you really want to go down in history as this, this being your first miracle? Is that really, really what you want? Um, and there's, like I said, there's a lot of meaning to this that we miss because we read it and we're like, okay, you know, Paul, he must have been having a really bad day. Okay, so this is what's happening here because there's a lot of background stuff, un- things underneath the layers that, that I need to point out here so that we understand what Paul's really trying to do here. So Paul shows up at the proconsul, and he wants to share the message of Jesus, the message of love, the message of generosity. But when he gets there, he sees this Jewish man. This Jewish man, okay, has a history of understanding Jewish culture. And Paul happens to be an expert at Jewish culture. This person, Bar-Jesus, he understands, and he, he also knows the Old Testament. Paul happens to be an expert at the Old Testament. So when he sees this person misguiding and misleading the people around him, what he does is that he strikes him blind, and what, that is, what's, what, what that's actually doing is he's actually giving a, a, a message that, that is unspoken. You see, because in the book of Leviticus, there's a passage there that says, if you want to qualify as somebody as, that, that wants to be a leader or a priest, here are a list of qualifications you have to meet. And one of the things on that list is you cannot be blind. So this is what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, you think you can lead people astray? Well, I'm going to disqualify you from being a leader. And, and in so doing, you're going to be disqualified until, it, it, you're going to be disqualified and you're going to be led by other people. And when you're ready to, be, ready to be a real leader that only speaks good words to people, then your blindness will be lifted. So this is what Paul is saying in this one little miracle. He's saying, you don't, you're not fit to be a leader right now because all you're doing is thinking about yourself. All you care about is your well-being. The reason why you like that, that status as the, 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 the person sitting next to the most powerful person in, in uh, Paphos is because you, you, just love being, you just love controlling people. So I'm going to take that away from you. And when you're ready, you'll regain your sight. That's what this whole miracle is about here. Okay, so let's go to the next verse. When the proconsul saw what, he had, what had happened, it's like, oh, I just saw somebody who could see that went blind. You would think that would impress him, right? But that's not what Luke records for us. It says that he believed, he became a Jesus follower. For, meaning, here's the reason why. It's not because the miracle that this person said, I want to start following Jesus. He says, it's because for, 
Next verse. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, remember we said that the proconsul is an intelligent man? Well, it turns out he's very smart. Here, next slide. The proconsul joined the Jesus movement because he was able to see the implications of the resurrection. So when it says that, that he, he believed because of the teachings about the Lord, the word teaching there is a callback to Acts chapter 2. I'm, I'm nerding out a little bit right now. But in Acts chapter 2, it said that the church gathered, they broke bread, they said they prayed, and they, you know, they took care of each other. You know. But one of the things that listed there is that they, they listened to the apostles' teachings. That's the same word right there. What that means is they talked about the resurrection. Hey, did you know Jesus died and rose again? It's like, yeah. And they said, what are the implications of that? That's what this teaching is talking about. What are the implications? So for example, if you could just imagine yourself to be the most powerful person in Paphos and the only person more powerful than you is the Caesar, you're thinking, my king, my lord, Caesar, he achieved peace by killing every single person who disagreed with him. That's how he achieved peace. But this king, King Jesus, he achieved peace not by killing people who disagree with him, but laying his own life down. It's like backwards. Well, what are the implications of that? Well, if he says who he is, that his image is in all of us, then that means that we have no right killing other people. If Jesus embraced the people that disagreed with him, then maybe we should be doing the same thing. There's implications of the resurrection, right? If love that Jesus embodied was killed and nailed to the cross, but came back and conquered death, then that means the most powerful force in this world has to be love. These are implications of the death and resurrection. People had to behave a certain way because they were afraid that if they don't behave a certain way, that Caesar would kill them, right? But in the Jesus movement, he's like, you know how we're going to break the world a better place? We're going to transform every single heart that connects with God, and they're going to become more generous. They're going to become more loving. They're going to become more sacrificial. They're going to become people who are able to tolerate people who are not like them. If God could transform our hearts like that, and there's more and more people who are like that, that will bring peace to this world. There'll be heaven on earth. But the way that Caesar does it is just kill the people who don't behave a certain way. So he's starting to put all these pieces together. This is why it says that the proconsul was a wise man. He was an intellectual man. He knew exactly. He's like, okay, wait, if this were to be true, if, this, if, if, if what, what Paul and Barnabas, are, if what they're saying is, is true, then this has huge implications for this world. It could change everything. It could dethrone people like Caesar. As a matter of fact, the church is starting to grow. And, you know, I saw with my own eyes on, on this island of Cyprus that people's lives were being different and they're starting to care for each other. This is why there's international gatherings of people. There's people with different backgrounds who are hanging out together. And so right now his mind's like, wow. Proconsul's like, my brain is just about to explode. This is just, this is amazing. I want that. By the way, as a side note, this is what the good news is. This is the gospel. It wasn't just, hey, guess what, proconsul, if you die, you're going to go to heaven. That wasn't the, 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 the main thrust of Paul's message here. His thrust was this amazing vision that Jesus had for the world that was actually coming into fruition. Okay, 
So we talked about a lot of things. We're going to summarize everything right now. So first we talked about the church, right? The church in Athens, uh, not Athens, the church in Antioch was a model church. It's a multi-ethnic group of people. It was diverse, but it wasn't just for like ethnicity's sake. It was also for the range of economic statuses that we talked about, right? There was the rich and the poor all together, people of different skin colors, people of different citizenships, people who are citizens of Rome, people who are citizens of, of Israel, people who are citizens of different places. They all came together in unity because of Jesus. Okay, and then the very next part of the story, we talked about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit was working through them, that these people who had diverse backgrounds came together and they didn't fight each other. They discussed and they prayed, they worshiped, they fasted together, and they were able to come up with these selfless assertions of what they think God is doing, and they would listen to each other, and then they come to this conclusion. They're like, I think this is what God wants to do. And usually that led to uncomfortable decisions, like we have to give up two of our greatest leaders so that the gospel, the good message, could spread to the world. And then we talked about the implications of the resurrection. The implication of the resurrection means that we could bring heaven on earth right here, right now. We could change people's lives for the better. People won't have to war against each other anymore if people's lives are, if the hearts of the people are changed. Like what they want is not more, more, more resources. It's not, I want more of this, more of that. I want to hoard more land or I want more power. It's, I want to give away power. I want to give away my resources. I want to help the people who are in need. If we could get all those three, so if we could get that thing in place in people's hearts, then this could bring peace to the world, not by destroying people who disagree with you, but by embracing the people who disagree with you, right? So we talked about the model church. We talked about the Holy Spirit. We talked about the implications of the resurrection. And this combination of these three things is what created the expanding ripples. Jesus started something and the ripples were going into the world from from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, the gospel of Jesus was spreading. Not because they had some cool program, like, hey, come to our bounce house and, you know, you could join our church. It wasn't like that. It's the way that people treated each other. It's how the church became selfless and they talked to each other regardless of their diverse backgrounds. Hey, we need to hear from somebody who's poor. We need to hear somebody who doesn't look like us. We need to talk to somebody who... who um, who has a history of, of crime, I don't know, like people who have like diverse backgrounds, they come together and say, hey, let's all fast, let's put aside our differences, our wants, our agendas, and let's talk about it. And they said, I think this is what God wants us to do. And this is how the church expanded in the first century. It's not by handing somebody a booklet saying, hey, here are some four things that you need to agree to if you want to become a Jesus follower. I mean, sure, that's a part of it, maybe, in some cases, but the thing that Luke, the author of Acts, points out is this dynamic, explosive, like the, the heart's being transformed, that kind of thing. And I pray that our church could be like that too. Amen? All right, let's pray.